You're listening to a podcast from Catalyst Vineyard Church, Aberdeen. You can find out more about our church, as well as more talks on our website, catalyst.fin. this morning at Acts chapter 15 and I wonder if you've ever been part of a club or a gang or something where there was a certain initiation or something that you had to do to to be part of that that gang. When I was about 10, my friend Gemma and I started up, it wasn't a club, it was a society, and it was called the Tarantula Society. I have no idea why we set it up. We weren't particularly knowledgeable about spiders or tarantulas or anything of the sort, um, but we made up this society. And to be part of our Tarantula Society, you would have had to have known our Tarantula Society theme song, which was written by us, a reworded version of the Bangles classic Eternal Flame, although, of course, we called it Eternal Leg. And for some reason, we used to go around our campsite. We both had, our families had caravans on the same campsite, and we used to go around like this. You had to do a special facial expression to walk around the campsite with large legs. No idea why. But nobody really wanted to join our society, so it wasn't really an issue that people didn't know the words to eternal leg off by heart. Or you might have been desperately wanting to be part of some sort of gang or club or something, but you didn't fit the requirements. That was a bit like my sister. She had a friend who had an amazing gang hut, um, but he had this rule that only boys were allowed in the gang hut. And she used to plead with him every time she went to his house, please, can I come into your gang hut? And he said, no, because you're a girl. And, um, and she wasn't allowed. Every time she would plead, and he would just say, he had this phrase that he always used, my gang hut, my rules. And this is what we see creeping in today in Acts chapter 15. There's a certain group of Jews who I would like to call the troublemakers, um, and they've travelled hundreds of miles from Jerusalem to Antioch to say to the, to the Gentile believers, if you want to be part of our gang, you have to follow our rules. In other words, what they were saying was, if you want to be a follower of Christ, you have to be circumcised, because that was the mark of a Jew that went back to the time of Abraham. So they were saying, to become a Christian, you have to become a Jew first. And that's not actually what, what was true. And this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute with them, it says, um, and they go to Jerusalem to sort it all out. So instead of me telling you the whole story, let's read together from Acts chapter 15. It is quite a long passage and we're going to read it all, so just stick with it. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they travelled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. 
the apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were, have been able to bear? No, we believe it's through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Paul and Barnabas telling about the signs and wonders God had done amongst the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon, which is another name for Peter, had described to us how God had intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this as it is written. And then he quotes from the book of Amos, which is a book in the Old Testament. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it. That uh, restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, this is what James says, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogue on every Sabbath. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided who to choose from their own men and sent, send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, who is called Barsabas, and Silas, men who were leaders amongst the believers. With them they sent the following letter to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria and Cilicia. Greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friend Barnabas and, uh, Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You're to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. That's the end of the letter. So what was the result? So the men were sent off, went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. After spending some time there, they were sent off by the believers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. Thanks for staying with that very long reading. And I'm always aware that when I preach, I have read this passage loads of times and read commentaries on it and read around it and I've been thinking about it for, for a wee while, but you might have just read that for the first time. So I'm just going to do a very quick recap.
So we've got these troublemaker Jews who travel to um, to Antioch and they tell the, the Gentile believers there, you have to be circumcised if you want to be saved. Paul and Barnabas disagree with this and they travel to the leaders of the church in Jerusalem to try and resolve the conflict. Then we have three speeches. We've got Peter's speech, where he says that we're all saved by Jesus alone, Jews and Gentiles alike. And then the second speech is Paul and Barnabas, where they tell of all the signs and wonders that God is already doing amongst the Gentiles. And then we have James's speech, where he concludes what's happening and makes a decision and they write the letter. The letter is then sent back to Antioch and the result is the believers are strengthened and there's peace and Paul and Barnabas get on with the original job of sharing the gospel. So what do we do with all that? Well, the first point I want to just make absolutely clear is that it's never Jesus plus. What these troublemakers came to Antioch to say was, you need to, if you want to be saved, you have to follow Jesus, but you also have to be circumcised. They put something additional onto what um, Jesus had already done. They were saying that Jesus wasn't enough to save them, to save them. They had to do something more, something physical as an outward expression um, that they were followers of Jesus. And verse 2 tells us that this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute with them. Rightly so. Alarm bells started to go off in Paul and Barnabas's head. And I want to just say to you today, if anybody ever says to you that you need to do more than just accept Jesus as your saviour, then alarm bells should be starting to go off in your head too. Because it's never Jesus plus. When Jesus died on the cross, he didn't just pay part of our salvation, he paid it all. He didn't just say, <clears throat> excuse me, this is a deposit, you have to work your way up to the rest. Many other religions say that sort of stuff, but that's not what Jesus said. He said on the cross, it is finished. And when the risen Jesus met Mary outside the tomb, he said, I am going to my father and your father, my God and your God. By his death and resurrection, he made that access for us to go straight to the Father, to have our sins forgiven, to have an eternal life with him. And we just need to accept Jesus as our saviour. We don't need to do anything on top of that. So it's never Jesus, Jesus plus. Peter says, no, we believe it's through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved just as they are. So the Jews and the Gentiles were saved in exactly the same way by trusting in Jesus as their saviour. Ephesians chapter 2 also tells us that it's, been grace, it's, it's by grace you've been saved through faith. And it says that that's not by works, nothing that we do so that no one can boast. It's all Jesus. And if you're new to church or new to watching Catalyst Live and you don't know much about Jesus yet, I just want to make it super clear to you that Jesus is offering you a free gift of salvation. It wasn't free to him, it cost him his life. But to us, it's free, thankfully. And we just need to say thank you. And we need to say sorry to God for the wrong things we've done and ask him to be Lord of our life. And if you want to do that today, we'll make an opportunity for you to do that. And when we say that, when we say to God, yes, we want you to be, I want you to be Lord of my life. There isn't an outward thing that God does. There was no circumcision required, but what God then does is he gets to work on our heart. It becomes a heart issue. 
And Peter says in, in his speech, in verses 8 and 9, it says, God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts through faith. So this verse tells us two, ver two things about our hearts. It tells us that God knows our hearts, and it tells us that God purifies our hearts. So God knows our hearts. That can be a comforting and a bit of a scary thing. I was recently in hospital and I had to have some tests done on my heart and one of them was a heart scan. And as I was lying on the hospital bed where the sonographer was scanning my heart, he was looking at all the, the, the whole heart, he was looking at all the chambers, all the vessels, all the valves, he was checking blood flow, he was checking so many things. He got into every area of my heart. He took hundreds and hundreds of pictures and measurements. And as I was lying there, this verse was going through my head that God knows our hearts. And I was very thankful that God knew my heart. But sometimes when we think about God knowing our hearts, that can make us feel a wee bit squirmy because that means that God knows our hopes and our dreams, our desires, what we're passionate about, what, we, what really makes us tick. It also means that he knows our fears, our anxieties. It means he knows all the dark thoughts that are in there and things that aren't in line with what he would have for us. But despite all that, it tells us that he purifies our hearts through faith and it tells us that God does the purifying the Gentiles didn't need to make an external change to their bodies because the change that God was looking at was a change of their heart Isaiah 64 verse 8 says but now O Lord you are our father we are the clay you are our potter and we are all the work of your hand and there are numerous verses in the Bible that talk about God being the potter and us being the clay. And when we surrender our lives to God, we give him our hearts and we say, you have permission to mould it, reshape it to be more like yours. When I was a student, um, my flatmate Maxine uh, suggested that she and I sign up for a pottery class. Now, I've no idea why I actually agreed to do this with Maxine, because Maxine was the sort of flatmate that would come down to the lounge with her guitar and we would say, Maxine, sing us a song about, I don't know, a postman and a turtle, and she would make up this beautiful song. <laughs> or um, you'd come in from a day at uni and Maxine would have made you a card that had a beautiful poem written inside it and she might have painted something on it. She was like high up in the creativity stakes, whereas I was not blessed with a lot of creativity when God made me. So when she suggested that we went to this pottery class, I went along, probably had more ideas about Patrick Swayze than actually creating something, although we never even graduated to the wheel. But we would each be given a lump of clay and Maxine would instantly start to create some beautiful thing just with her hands and the clay. And I would sit there with my lump of clay thinking, I have no inspiration of what even to make and I've no idea how to make this clay into something beautiful. And after a while, I would then look at Maxine and think, oh, well, I'll just try and recreate what she's doing. But it never looked as good as hers, of course. Um, and I wonder, as you're listening, you might be thinking about your heart and thinking, just like me with my lump of clay, thinking, I have no idea how to make my heart into something beautiful. Well, the beauty of the gospel is that you're not the potter. God is the potter and he can shape your heart 
into anything beautiful. You just need to offer it to him and he will begin the shaping process because he can make all things beautiful. And I love Isaiah chapter 61. It talks about the spirit of the Lord being on Jesus and it gives you a list of things that um, the spirit enables Jesus to do. And in verse three, it says, um, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. God can take all things and turn them into something beautiful for his splendor, even your heart. A wee challenge to us is when did we last offer our heart to God? We sing songs that say things like, take my heart and, and make it clean <clears throat> or make it new. But do we actually mean it? And do we actually mean God, like that sonographer could get into all the areas of my heart. Lord, I'm offering you my heart in its entirety and you can change whatever you want to change in there. And that doesn't just happen when we say yes to Jesus initially. That's a daily process. Until the day we go to be with Jesus in heaven, he's always wanting to shape us and transform us to be more like his. So that's just my challenge to you today, to offer God your heart in its entirety and let him get to work and make it into something beautiful. So, so far in the passage, we've had Peter make his speech. And then, <clears throat> excuse me, we have Paul and Barnabas who say, these are all the things that God is already doing amongst the Gentiles. And then James stands up and he makes the decision to write the letter um, to the Gentiles. But I just thought it'd be worth taking a wee moment really practically to look at how James makes his decision. Because we all have difficult decisions to make in our life. And um, we can learn from, from James's process. So four things that I've picked out that he does. One thing he does, he looks at the Bible. So he looks back at what the prophets said. He looks at particularly at what the prophet Amos said, which said that the Gentiles would come to know God. So that is what has been prophesied in the word of God. So if you've got a tricky situation, why don't you read the Bible and see, well, what is God speaking to me through the Bible about it? What does the Bible say about this situation? Another thing he does is he looks at the experience. So he listens to Paul and Barnabas. We've already said, oh, these are the things God is doing through the Gentiles. He's doing miraculous signs and wonders. So he's saying, okay, the prophet said this would happen. Now we see it's happening. The next thing he says is in verse 28, it says it seemed good to the Holy Spirit. So he consults the Holy Spirit. He listens to what the Holy Spirit is saying. And, and they decide to do something based on that. So in your situation, have you consulted the Holy Spirit? Have you listened to his promptings? Have you listened out for his guidance and what, is he, what he is leading you to do? And the second part of verse 28 says, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. So they use their common sense. In light of what the Bible said, what the experience is that's happening, what the Holy Spirit says, and then what common sense says, that leads them to make their decision. So if you've got a tricky decision to make in your life just now, just encourage you to look at these four things. I tried to make it into four S's, and it works if you spell experience E-X-S-P, which isn't actually <laughs> right, but you've got four S's. Scripture, experience, see what I did there? Spirit, 
and sense. It's just a really practical way to make a decision, so I thought I would just give you that wee nugget there from the passage, um, and if that's something that's helpful to you, then all good and well. So they take all these things into consideration, and the conclusion that James comes to is that the Gentiles do not need to be circumcised, thankfully, but he does suggest some guidelines, um, not laws, but things that would make living in harmony between the Jews and the Gentiles a bit easier. He says in verse 19, you would do well to avoid these things. So he's not laying it down as law, but he's just saying, if you do these things, it would, things would go a lot easier for you. So his recommendation, excuse me, I'm just going to have a wee drink here, is that the Gentiles abstain from four things. So they are food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. He goes on to say that the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. In other words, what he's saying is these Jews have had these laws ingrained in them. They've been taught every Sunday, every Sabbath since they were born that these are the things that they should abstain from. Um, it's absolutely ingrained in them and there were strict rules around what the Jews could eat, how the animal had to be killed, and sorry to be too graphic, but that was having its throat, throat cut so that all the blood could drain out of them because they weren't allowed to eat blood. No black pudding was on the menu in a Jewish breakfast, sadly. Um, and also it talks about sexual immorality. So the the laws that were laid out that James is talking about, the, the three things that he says, so food sacrificed to idol, uh, idols, animals that had been strangled, and, um, and blood, these were all laid out in Leviticus chapter 17. And it would be common practice for people who weren't Jews to sacrifice an animal to an idol of some unknown, some unknown idol, and, and then that meat would then end up in the marketplace. Um, it also talks about sexual immorality, and from reading commentaries, it's not necessarily talking about sex outside marriage, which we'd usually think of as sexual immorality, although they would also be required to abstain from that. But I think what it's talking about here, from what I've read, is what it talks about in the next chapter of Leviticus, in chapter 18, which talks about not marrying a close relative, which would be very taboo for the Jews as well, but the Gentiles might have thought that was okay. So all these things would have made it difficult for the Jews and Gentiles to come together and have fellowship together. Um, if the Jews went to a meal, or the Gentiles went to a meal with the Jews, they might have gone to the marketplace, they might have bought this really juicy steak, they might think, oh, I've brought you this lovely juicy steak. Um, but the Jews might be looking at it thinking, well, my conscience doesn't allow me to eat that because I don't know if it was first sacrificed to an idol. It looks very juicy, so it's probably got blood in it. And add to that, you take along your spouse who's a close relative, and that would have been completely taboo, and there wouldn't have been harmony at that meal or that gathering. My sister-in-law, Kirsty, um, and her family, they have got this um, big wall sticker up in their house. And it says, in this house, we do real, we do mistakes. We do I'm sorry, we do second chances. We do fun, we do forgiveness. We do hugs, we do loud really well. They do have two small boys, so I'll tell you they do. Um, we do family and we do love. And they have this on their wall, not as laws that they all have to follow, but 
it's kind of an understanding that this is how their family operates, especially this we do love. Because in here there's forgiveness, there's lots of stuff going on, but at the end of the day, they're not under the law of Moses, but they are under the law of love. And that's just what I would say to us today. I'm gonna to move this so that I don't knock it over. Um, and what James is saying is that harmony and unity amongst believers is really, really important. And whilst, as I said, we're not under the law of Moses, we are under the law of love. Jesus said in John 13, verse 35, by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples, if you love one another. And as we journey through our life, we'll meet people who love Jesus dearly, but to hold tightly to different beliefs from what we, we would hold on to. And our job is to live as best as we can under the law of love, not making it difficult for anyone to follow Jesus. The passage mentions three times, it says, let's not burden the Gentiles, let's not make it difficult. Let's not put a yoke on them. It says that three times. So let's not make it difficult to follow Jesus for other people. And whilst we don't have the same difficulties as the Jews and Gentiles had, we, we don't really worry about food sacrificed to idols or whether how the animal's been um, killed or things like that. that. That's not really in our day-to-day -day, um, conversations with other believers. But we do have plenty of other things that we can get on our high horses about, like um, what we, uh, what songs we sing, how we worship, um, do we eat meat? Do we drink alcohol? Do we use this version of the Bible or that version of the Bible? Do we wear hats to church? Do we um, have communion every week? Do we have it once a month? How do we take communion? Who takes communion? Who's in our leadership? The list could go on and on and on um, of things that we can hold really tightly to that um, maybe don't necessarily need to be held tightly to. Um, if you've read the book or seen the film Wonder, you'll be afraid of, uh, you'll be aware of the phrase, when given the choice between choosing right and choosing kind, choose kind. And I think sometimes we could do well in church to choose kind rather than choose being right. Believe me, when I was younger, I used to have um, arguments with people who went to different churches and did things differently from me, or even people in our own church. And I'd think, well, why do we do that? And, and have strong arguments with people trying to make them change their ways and see that I was right on all matters. And at the end of the day, it did nothing for the unity of the church. It did nothing for the building up of believers. It did nothing to draw us closer to God. All it did was help us to squabble. And the verse doesn't say, by this everyone will know you're my disciples if you squabble with one another. It's if you love one another. Ephesians 4 has a lot to say on unity in the church. And we've been looking at Ephesians in our um, online connect group. It's been brilliant. But it tells us, not to, bear with, it tells us to bear with one another in love. Um, Ephesians 4, 3 to 5 says, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father, who is over all, through all, and in all. It says, Make every effort to keep the unity and the bond of peace. Not just make a wee bit of an effort, but make every effort. 
We're not a group of Jews and Gentiles, but we are a group of people from different backgrounds, different cultures, different walks of life and experiences, and we're thrown together as church, as God's people, the body of Christ. And sometimes we just grumble far too much and we hold grudges against people. And if that's you today, I just want to encourage you to put these things aside and make every effort to keep the unity through the bond of peace. And if for you that means making some changes to the way you behave towards fellow believers or perhaps apologising for something that you need to apologise for, um, or some, maybe you just need to drop something that you find really irritating, that at the end of the day it's not that important to God for the sake of peace among fellow believers. Instead of being grumblers who point out our differences, let us instead keep our eyes on Jesus. Let's be full of grace for one another, full of respect, um, and do nothing to hinder someone from keeping their eyes on Jesus. That's actually a great question to ask yourself. Are my actions or words stopping someone from keeping their eyes fixed on Jesus? Just going back to the passage, um, they did need to sort out this conflict, though. I'm, I'm saying that all these things about um, living under the law of love, but they did need to sort out this issue because what the the Gentile, what the Jews were saying to the Gentiles was a salvation issue. They were saying you can't be saved unless you're circumcised. So this did need to be dealt with. And nobody wants conflict, but sometimes we have situations that arise that need to be dealt with. Um, and what happens is verse 31 to 33 tells us that the result of the letter was that the Gentiles were encouraged, they were strengthened, and peace was restored. Nobody wants conflict, as I said. But when it arises and we deal with it, it can lead to encouragement, strengthening, and peace. So don't shy away from dealing with difficult situations. Allowing things to go unresolved can sometimes lead to more problems than dealing with the conflict itself. Verse 35 tells us that Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. That's what they had been doing in the first place. But then they'd had to put that on pause to go to Jerusalem, sort out this issue, and then go back to teaching the word of the Lord. And I just wonder if you're watching today and there's something that's stopping you from doing what God wants you to be doing. Is there something that you need to deal with, some conflict that you need to resolve, which will then allow you to get on track, back on track with what God is calling you to do? The sooner it's dealt with, the sooner you can get back on track with God's plan for you. So in closing, I just want to say that God wants us to live in harmony with each other, which is difficult because we're sinful humans whose hearts haven't yet been fully purified by God. But we can, through the power of the Holy Spirit, make every effort to bear with one another and keep the unity of peace. And we can grow in that every day by offering our heart to God um, in its entirety and allowing him to purify our hearts through faith putting aside our own agenda and allowing him to shape our thoughts and our actions and recognising, as Ephesians 4 said, that he is over all, through all and in all.